0: I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.
1: Tortoise.
2: This is an exit poll, very carefully calculated, not necessarily on the nail. But here it is, 10 o'clock, and we are saying the Conservatives... Are the largest party. The Conservatives on 316. That's up nine.
3: It's the evening of May 7th, 2015. Election Day. In Labour HQ, the bomb has just dropped.
4: I remember when the exit poll came out, and I distinctly called turning round and seeing some of my colleagues who had their sort of hands over their mouths, as if they'd sort of witnessed a car crash.
3: Ed Miliband and his team had thought, had hoped, they had a good chance of getting Labour back into power after five years in opposition. Labour's communication director was Tom Baldwin. And the air just went out of the room.
4: And I remember spending quite a lot that night going for long walks around St James's Park,
3: discussing what had gone wrong, where this would go now, Baldwin and the traumatised team were in London. Ed Miliband was in his constituency in
4: Doncaster. He was due to get a helicopter back to London that night and thought actually that looked too triumphalous, so he drove back and we were all waiting for him when he came into the room and there were people
3: in tears. And he said he decided to resign. Other leaders, like Edward Heath, Harold Wilson, and Neil Kinnock, had lost an election and continued on to fight another, or remained in office to oversee a succession as had the losing Conservative leader in 2005, Michael Howard. Tom Baldwin thought his boss should do the same. And so I tried my best to say, look, if
4: you could stay on for three or four months, it will stabilise the party, probably stop the party doing something stupid. But I think he'd had enough.
5: Britain needs a Labour Party that can rebuild after this defeat so we can have a government that stands up for working people again. And now it's time for someone else to take forward the leadership of this party. So I'm tendering my resignation. I want to do so straight away because
3: the party... I was on a live BBC election programme when Miliband made that speech. I remember saying that I thought he was wrong, immoral even, from Labour's point of view, to just flounce off the field. But I had no idea, none at all, and nor did anyone else, what his abrupt departure would lead to. The election of the most unlikely and radical leader in post-war history, The takeover of the Labour Party by what had been thought of as its fringe. The hobbling of the referendum fight against Brexit. Titanic internal battles of increasing bitterness. Two more Labour election defeats, one closer than expected and one worse than any Labour nightmare could have envisaged. To be followed by the election of a new leader who, as the pandemic gripped the country, set about erasing all traces of the old one. It's a story of a double revolution inside just eight years that helped shape Britain as it is today and may well shape it tomorrow. I'm David Aronovich from Tortoise. This is Eight Years Hard Labour, Episode 1, Jez We Can. While Ed Miliband absorbed the bad news in Doncaster, 170 miles away and almost unnoticed, the London constituency of Hoban and St Pancras acquired a new Member of Parliament. We need more than ever tonight in light of the results to protect our public services and our NHS.
6: And we need to ensure that HS2 does not come into Euston in our constituency.
3: (laughs) No HS2 to Euston? Let's see how that goes. But in fact, the new MP's more immediate problem, as it was for all his colleagues, was what kind of opposition Labour was going to be, and to that end, who would lead that opposition. And here, the rules had changed. Ed Miliband had bequeathed to his party a new system. Gone was the old electoral college of a third MPs, a third union members and a third party members. In came one party member, one vote, and for three quid, even non-party members could cast a ballot. The idea, explains Tom Baldwin... It would reduce the vote of the unions
4: and the influence of the union members and liberate the party to go out and sign up lots of new centrist members who aren't like the sort of hairy left-wingers that uh, so many people in the media and beyond despise.
3: What could go wrong? especially since MPs were the gatekeepers of who could qualify to get on the ballot of the membership. And early on, there were three front-runners, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham and Liz Kendall. A still-smarting membership did not seem properly enthused. Stephen Bush was a young Labour watcher working for the New Statesman magazine. Most uh, of the party rank-and-file had not seen
7: the 2015 Defeat coming? Yeah, I would say there was very little enthusiasm for for any of these candidates and generally a sense of fatalism.
3: The leading candidates belonged to the centre and centre-left. Over on the left-left, they were discussing whether they would put up a candidate at all. Though he was not an MP, the veteran left-winger and seasoned campaigner John Lansman was a big part of these discussions.
8: I felt extremely strongly that uh, we needed to have a candidate. We weren't necessarily looking for the kind of candidate we, you know, we got. You know, we would have settled for a softer left candidate um, had there been one. I mean, I think some might have thought of John McDonald as a candidate. And, you know, having known John since GLC days when he was deputy leader... You know, and effectively ran the campaign against abolition. You know, my experience of him back then was of great competence. You know, who could make decisions, who could delegate, and had quite a lot of leadership skills. However, I didn't think then that he would have a chance in hell of getting on the ballot paper.
3: MacDonald had made too many enemies in the past. He'd offended too many of his colleagues, so people started to look at his fellow left winger, the long-standing MP for Islington North. Might he get on the ballot?
1: Talking to people who were running the campaigns of the three mainstream candidates, none of them really thought Corbyn had a chance of getting on the final ballot.
3: Cat Nealon, Tortoise's political editor, has spent months speaking to Labour insiders, securing access to key figures close to the last three party leaders and other main players who've controlled the party machinery in the last decade.
1: His support was slowly creeping up, not with any real sense that he would win, but to show that Labour was this broad church we always hear about. MPs say it was to widen the debate. That's probably a slightly noble way of looking at it. Remember, this was just after Ed Miliband had lost, in part because of the Red Ed attack lines. So Corbyn was very far left of Miliband, but he wasn't taken that seriously within the PLP. He struggled to get just enough nominations to get him through the first round. Ultimately, scrape through that to the next stage when members would vote. But as one person who was closely involved in Yvette Cooper's campaign told me, MPs kind of failed to realise just how disaffected a lot of their newer members were with the people they blamed for the Iraq war and for the financial crush. In fact, it was described to me as a boiling rage. And that's how it translated through voting for Corbyn.
3: Many mainstream MPs like Exeter's Ben Bradshaw didn't hate Corbyn.
5: I was a minister in the Labour government and I did foreign affairs for a while and Middle East was my portfolio and I was aware of Jeremy because, of course, he had always been very engaged on um, Palestine, Israel uh, and also actually on some, um, I thought, some rather admirable causes that no other MP seemed to be interested in, like the fate of the West Saharans uh, uh, and various other peoples who'd been hard done by around the world. If
7: you've ever been on a walking holiday, or like a like real ale thing, or you've gone to a lower league football team, you've met someone a lot like Jeremy Corbyn, you know, who has like some rather odd interests and collects something, and is like very polite and well mannered in that
3: very English way. But was Corbyn up to the job of being the standard bearer for the left? There's even a question mark over to what extent he really wanted to be leader, let alone prime minister
1: there was always this rumour that he was talked into it by John McDonnell and some of the others in the campaign group, the the sort of left-wing group in the PLP, because others, including John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, had tried and failed. And so Jeremy Corbyn was really the only plausible candidate left for the left-wing group to, to coalesce behind. And that kind of translated into the sense that Corbyn didn't really want to be leader. He didn't really want to be prime minister. He'd never thrown his hat into the ring. He didn't particularly like giving interviews and that was quite clear. Um, it kind of all came together to give this sense that he was there kind of under sufferance. And because he was so used to being on the sidelines, out of the spotlight, making his jam and going to protest, he wasn't really prepared for the pressures that being leader would bring. You know, and Jeremy was very
8: active, particularly on kind of foreign policy issues, and I suppose I saw his role as more being about, you know, giving moral support from the backbenches in Parliament than really achieving significant, any, any significant changes.
3: So maybe not first choice, but at least he might get a chance to make the left's arguments to the membership
8: when he was first proposed, I was fairly sceptical. And the thing that persuaded me was, you know, the figure from the from the trade union movement who said, well, you know, he's got no enemies, which makes him a better candidate for, and it's, tr- it's true, he didn't have any enemies. He was thought of very broadly within the PLP as being a kind of decent human being who, um, you know, was very moral. Well, of course, I hadn't Bargain at that stage with the possibility that we would get even close to winning.
3: John Lansman's calculation was bang on. People in the centre thought the process required someone on the left to be present and to be duly defeated. So some were happy to contemplate lending a
4: nomination. But it was thought important to give legitimacy to the contest, to have a left winger there and it was Jeremy Corbyn's turn and nobody, including Jeremy Corbyn and his closest
3: friends
7: and family, expected him to win.
3: The journalist Stephen Bush was following the battle for nominations.
7: I hit the phone, rang you know, almost everyone I knew in the Parliamentary Labour Party, and it became obvious to me that there were 35 nominations at the time, the threshold to get him on the ballot. So I you know, bashed out this piece, being I you know Jeremy Corbyn can make the ballot, you know, he, you know, there, there's a path and here's why, he included some anonymous quotes. And I remember very vividly just watching this this piece of, you know, essentially yeah, what we call in the States inside baseball, shoot right to the top of our most
3: read. Two minutes before the deadline for nominations, Jeremy Corbyn, with 36, made it onto the ballot. The token left-winger, most people thought. Not former Minister Ben Bradshaw, though. Well, I'm afraid to say
5: I had that fear the moment he got on the ballot. And I remember feeling rather angry with colleagues of mine who should have known better who gave him a vote to put him on the ballot so that somebody from the left was represented. Because I was very worried uh, that uh, what would happen did happen in that the Labour membership, which had already shifted significantly under Ed Middelband and he changed the electoral system much for the worst. We'd had five years of a leader who refused to defend the record of the Labour government. If anything, he did it down. And I was worried. I never thought we'd win the 2015 election. I didn't think we stood a chance that the response of Labour Party members would be this emotional spasm that indeed we got of, oh, it wasn't because uh, we were too left-wing it's because the voters were wrong. So actually we want someone who's even more left-wing. It was a kind of collective psychological denial about the reasons why we had lost. So I remember feeling rather full of gloom as soon
3: as Corbyn got on the ballot. This was unusual prescience. Even Corbyn's supporters didn't think he had a chance. When his campaign began, the early signs were mildly encouraging, but even so, it was expected to be a failure, if mildly heroic. Paul Mason was a rare supporter of the left in the mainstream British media. So rare that he was consulted by figures
6: such as the General Secretary of the mighty Unite Trade Union, Len McCluskey. Even at the time when Jeremy Corbyn was beginning to make an impression in the Labour leadership race in 2015, I can remember sitting in a room with Len McCluskey saying, what does the left want from Andy Burnham?
1: Welcome to the Newsnight Labour Leadership Debate. It's the moment the
5: race to replace Ed Miliband left the Westminster village. These are the four people shortlisted by the Labour Party to be its next Prime Minister, presented to the public for the first time
1: today.
2: Is a budget surplus the most important economic objective?
1: Jeremy Corbyn, straight to you, shaking your head vigorously. No, it is
2: not the most important thing. The most important thing is to ensure our community, has a health service, has an education service, a people are decently housed, and young people have abilities to go into work and develop themselves. Why is it in Britain today, the 100 richest people equal the total wealth of 30% of the population? That is fundamentally wrong. In mid-June,
3: the BBC's Newsnight hosted a hustings in the Midlands. Labour activist, later to be elected North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll, was watching. It wasn't Andy Burnham
9: who caught his eye. And I remember watching that first Hustings, I think it was in Nuneaton. And he started saying, he's, it's fair to say he's never been a great orator, but he's just a very straightforward communicator. And him saying things like, well, I think we've got to just deal with poverty. I think we should be building council houses. And it got a huge level of support. And I thought, ooh, something's happening here. And I thought they're gonna underestimate this guy. He's gonna end up with something like 30% of the vote. Um, and I'd underestimated it as well. <laughs>
3: John Lansman was helping direct the Corbyn campaign and he was beginning to see the same thing, starting at the conference of another major
8: union. I mean, at the very first public meeting, which happened to be the GMB conference, which took place in Dublin, immediately after, you know, he was nominated. Which you know, it was breathtaking, you know, how, uh, you know, his kind of just straight response, rather than the evasive responses from every other uh, candidate at that point, you know, it got a, a really quite astonishing response.
3: Hardened political journalists felt they'd seen such public demonstrations of support of the left before, and they usually presaged defeat. Stephen Bush was too young to be hardened. And it just
7: started to feel, from very early on, no, no, look, there's there's real energy behind this candidate. There's real excitement from people you wouldn't expect to be excited. There's a broader upswell behind this candidate than the one we would expect. Sam Tarry was a Labour Party member and union employee. I was
10: working for a uh, trade union, uh, TSSA, and um, our executive, you know, uh, was looking at who we were going to support. And it became quite obvious quite quickly um, that something was bubbling away under the surface. You know, there are people turning up to uh, events in larger and larger numbers. This is quite in the early days, there were young people who had not been involved in certainly Labour Party politics at all, turning up to these events. And everyone seemed to be kind of growing uh, in size. And there started
7: to be a bit of a buzz around it. The hustings all became Corbyn rallies, right? Like, he was the only person who was exciting to the activist.
3: The three main candidates, all with the experience of government, campaigned as though it was business as usual sensible policies, carefully maintained positions. Here's Kat Neelan.
1: Among the people deciding who they were going to back for a future leader was this new cohort of MPs who'd literally just been in the House of Commons for a few weeks. We found an article by Labour List from this time, June 2015, in which it describes Keir Starmer as the most prominent of newly elected Labour MPs, primarily because he was, of course, a, a director of public prosecutions before joining the Commons. And it says he had nominated Andy Burnham to be the next leader. Now, at this point, Andy Burnham was the front runner. He had 65 MPs backing him. Uh, it looked almost odds on that he would be the next Labour leader, even though Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall also had quite a few numbers backing them. Jeremy Corbyn was still far below the threshold. With Andy Burnham so far ahead of all of the other MPs that were running for leader, it looked as though Keir Starmer had made a safe bet, perhaps even bought himself a place in a future government. But of course, the wheels quickly came off.
3: Liam Byrne had been Gordon Brown's Chief Secretary to the Treasury and was now in charge of Yvette Cooper's campaign. Looking back, he sees what happened. So I think what a lot of
11: the Labour leadership candidates had underestimated was the boiling rage that had built up amongst Labour members about the pain and agony of austerity. But I think what everybody had missed was the fact that that anger and agony had become organised. So you had initiatives and grassroots organisations that had grown out of the Stop the War Coalition, uh, that had morphed into the People's Assembly against austerity, which had been pretty well structured by a lot of good people in the trade union movement. And so not only was there, um, you know, a boiling rage, there was a level of organization too. And what Jeremy was able to do was to bring those two things together and in a, you know, in a really powerful surge tide of support for his leadership,
3: candidature only one campaign it seems was efficiently signing up new young members and three pound voters online
10: it tapped into a zeitgeist this idea that actually people wanted someone that wasn't just an ordinary kind of gray politician that you know that there was someone that had this authenticity it felt like that we were living in a moment
3: of a political eruption Up in the northeast, Jamie Driscoll had helped publicise a rally for the man from Islington
9: North. There was an event organised in Newcastle at the Time Theatre and Opera House, and this is a big venue, I think fifteen hundred seats, and it was massively oversubscribed. Um, and I haven't been able to get a seat in there. And there was an overflow rally in the square outside, where there was about six or seven hundred people standing in the rain. We directed a temporary stage. That was the first time I actually got involved in the Corbyn campaign.
3: Inside the hall, Jeremy Corbyn was received with rapture and sent off with a roar of support.
2: Thank you so much.
3: (laughs) Commentators struggled with what seemed to be going on. I certainly did.
6: I should have listened to Paul Mason. For probably... You know, 2016, 2017, I, I was a person in the media who was called on to explain. Because I have to tell you that in the mainstream media, Newsnight the BBC where I, and Channel 4 News, where I come from, there was extreme scepticism about Corbyn. Um, there was, I would almost describe it as incomprehension. How can this be happening? And one almost had to sit down with one's former colleagues and say, all right, I'll explain how it can happen because Labour is not simply a party of Blairite capitalist management, it happens to represent several million organised workers who are pissed off. And and now they're joined by several million young people who are equally seemingly pissed off with capitalism. Famously though,
3: meetings aren't votes. At the 1983 general election, Michael Foote, then leader of the Labour Party, campaigning on a left-wing manifesto, drew in huge crowds around the country and went down to a landslide defeat this time it was different the crowds were there and so was the machine and after a short time that operation was beginning to get back some surprising information
8: we you know began organizing phone banking which took off in the most dramatic way um we quite rapidly got quite a lot of data from those canvas returns um and It was clear that it was going to be the left's best showing since 1981, uh, I think, quite quickly. But, you know, that's a long way from being, you know, a winning campaign. And the first indications we had that really convinced us, you know, made it uh, uh, appear to us, and initially it was to me, you know, I was director of operation. So I, you know, was, was you know, in charge of all of the data gathering, the kind of technical stuff behind it. I, with my kind of most senior colleague, did an analysis of, of that. And we were shocked by the results. We, f- we weren't, you know, we thought, you know, that maybe there had been something wrong with the analysis, you know, spreadsheets are wonderful things, but errors are more difficult to spot. Uh, in the structure.
3: And then there were polls, initially secret, but Stephen Bush
7: was digging. When I started to hear, when I was calling round local members, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd asked me yeah, how it was going, people, You yeah, know, like, bit of this, bit of this, a lot of people backing Corbyn. And then someone mentioned to me that they had been surveyed by YouGov. And so I knew that there was a private poll out there, and so I went about trying to find ways to get sight of it. And I think one of the reasons why I felt so confident in saying he was going to win was that it was very clear right from the
5: beginning to me that there was energy around him. The left-wing MP Jeremy Corbyn has taken a strong lead in the Labour leadership race. The poll out this morning puts him well ahead of the other candidates. Paul Brand is at Westminster for us. So what does this mean for the Labour Party, Paul?
11: Well, this is causing a little bit of fear and a lot of infighting. Most Labour MPs think Jeremy Corbyn would be a disaster for them as leader. Even some of those who nominated him are now kicking themselves, particularly in the light of this new poll. It has Jeremy Corbyn on 43%. That is almost double the previous frontrunner, Andy Burnham, on 26%.
3: At first, the other campaigns refuse to believe it. Then a Times poll was published confirming what Stephen Bush had been saying. And in that strange way political people have of doubting the evidence of their own eyes until it's confirmed in a newspaper, the Corbyn campaign now understood what was about to happen.
0: Hello, I'm Giles Whittell, Tortoise's Deputy Editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster, Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.
8: It was only really when the, ti- the first times poll came out, which was only about four days later, that you know it it really chimed pretty v- very precisely with the findings that we were getting.
3: Do you remember the moment when you thought we're going to win this?
8: I do remember that, and I, you know I was concerned about our ability to to deliver, you know, just to deliver the, you know, we had a tremendous operation in the campaign, but um, running an opposition, never mind a government, was a different matter.
3: Locate yourself for me at the moment of
8: revelation. (laughs) We were in the offices, by then I think we had more than one floor in the offices of the Transport and Salary Staff Association, and... My colleague and I immediately went and talked to Simon.
3: Simon Fletcher was Chief of Staff and Leaders Director of Campaigns.
8: About, you know, who we hadn't shared the detail of the analysis because we, you know, we hadn't been, we hadn't regarded sufficiently credible. And, you know, at that point, fully briefed John McDonnell. Uh, so, you know, there was that two or three day gap. And, you know, it meant. You know, my immediate thought was, you know, we've got to prepare for the possibility of winning and that requires a great deal of thought.
3: The Midlands MP Tom Watson, though not a Corbyn supporter, was clearly heading for victory in the separate deputy leadership
8: campaign. And so John had... A lot of discussions with Tom Watson about it, and just how you know if you win, for example, just how do you manage the operation of appointing people to a shadow cabinet and and junior places?
5: In the less than kind way that Labour run these things, the candidates for leader were told the result before they entered the room, and if there was any lingering doubt about who had won, the faces of Jeremy Corbyn's opponents said it all. Jeremy Corbyn. Two hundred and fifty-one. In the end, there was no room for doubt. Nearly 60% of the vote nothing other than a landslide, a thumping win by the man
3: who only just scraped onto the ballot. On the 12th of September 2015, the impossible was confirmed. A man who had never been a minister or a shadow minister, despite being in parliament for 32 years, was announced as leader of Her Majesty's principal party of opposition. His bemused and defeated opponents tried to smile, gamely congratulated him and then went off to calculate how long this strange interregnum would last. For their new leader had won while enjoying the support and confidence of a bare handful of his colleagues in the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party not exactly the most secure base from which to launch a bid to eventually become prime minister now corbyn and his advisors had to work out what to do next because the top man had never really run anything before
8: so i think there was broad agreement that the shadow cabinet would be an inclusive shadow cabinet of broad section of the plp you know we recognised that a great deal of the PLP were going to be antagonistic. I don't think we really anticipated just how antagonistic and how quickly they became antagonistic. Uh, but there was a presumption that, uh, you know, we would try and be as inclusive as possible. Now there were some red lines, and and you know this was based on discussions with Jeremy.
3: One major Corbyn supporter, however, had run things before bitter internal election campaigns, strikes, negotiations with intransigent employers and a union with 1.2 million members. And even if the vast majority of his members hadn't voted for him or his political outlook, Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey still took it upon himself to try and order the world. Jeremy Corbyn's election, winning with a mandate which dwarfed anything previously given to any other leader of a political uh, party in Britain, will, I believe, be seen as a major turning point in British
6: politics.
8: There was a presumption that John McDonnell would take the role of of Shadow Chancellor. We had a, a, a meeting quite late in the day at which Steve Turner came as a representative of Unite. And Steve Turner came to deliver a message from Len McCluskey quite clearly that it should not be John McDonnell who was Shadow Chancellor. The message from Len McCluskey was essentially it should not be John McDonald, it should be someone else. And there was very swift reaction against that, not least because we didn't want to be told what to do by Unite, by Len McCluskey. And, you know, that was a real, uh, I think, should have been to everyone, a real warning.
3: John Lansman knew that Corbyn's position and that of the Labour left would be precarious without a grassroots movement out there to support it and went off to start up an organisation to do just that, which he called Momentum. Meanwhile, back in Westminster, Labour MPs debated with themselves as to what they should do and decided that for the most part in the short term there was nothing they could do.
5: I remember thinking that we had to live with this result for the time being because we are a democratic party uh, and he had won uh, pretty uh, comprehensively.
11: I think my overwhelming feeling was that the Labour Party is a deep, wide and old institution um, that is resilient and strong. And what we have a duty to do, clause one of the Labour Party is that, you know, our mission and purpose is to, is, is to create a movement in the country that forms a government. And so, uh, you know, in a way, you had to respect the democracy and you had to respect the results. And so the leader having been elected, you know, you had to kind of try and find a way to make it work. But at first, it was not clear
3: quite how that could be done. Some old hands, like Yvette Cooper, refused offers to serve under Corbyn and retired to the back benches. Andy Burnham agreed to become Shadow Home Secretary. Yet other MPs, such as the newly elected member for Swansea East, Carolyn Harris, while not being Corbynites, felt that duty, a demanding mistress sometimes, called.
2: Well, I think a lot of us took jobs under Corbyn's team because somebody had to do it. You do it for the party, don't you? Not for the person. So, um, I became Andy's PPS. Then I ended up as, as as a shadow minister in the Home Office team. And then I became a shadow minister with the Women Inequalities team.
3: From early on, Harris was a friend and early admirer of another new MP, a rare knight on Labour's benches, the former Director of Public Prosecution, Sir Keir Starmer, who accepted the role of shadow immigration minister.
2: Um, and as so many people were not serving that I just... I imagine Keir was the same as me, felt that we had to make a contribution and in order to make us a credible opposition, because that's what we were. Whether we were a good opposition or not, is, is not by, no, it, now I would say we weren't a particularly good opposition, but we had to be an opposition.
3: It couldn't last, though, could it? Some commentators speculated about how long it would be before Jeremy Corbyn got fed up with the pressures and compromises of office and took himself off except that the man himself appeared to be actually enjoying it.
2: Thank you, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all those that took part in an enormous democratic exercise in this country, which concluded with me being elected as leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition. I think we can be very proud of the numbers of people who engaged and took part in all those debates. I've taken part in many events around the country and had conversations with many people about what they thought about this place, our Parliament, our democracy and our conduct within this place. And many told me that they thought Prime Minister's question time was too theatrical, that Parliament was out of touch and too theatrical and they wanted things done differently but above all they wanted their voice heard in Parliament. So I thought... My first Prime Minister's Question Time, I do it in a slightly different way. And I'm sure the Prime Minister is going to absolutely welcome this, as he welcomed this idea in 2005. But something seems to have happened to his memory during that period. Um,
3: Jeremy Corbyn had begun 2015 as a veteran backbencher who preferred his conscience and Latin American politics to the vicissitudes of power. He ended the year as the leader of the party of Attlee, Wilson and Blair. And he was having fun not for long though
0: now i want to speak directly to the british people to explain why we are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes whether to remain in a reformed european union or to leave
3: it couldn't last We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode and check out Tortoise's other award-winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode. Eight Years Hard Labour was written and reported by me, David Aronovich. Additional reporting was by Cat Nealon. It was produced by Valerio Esposito. Sound design and original music by Tom Kinsella. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Jasper Corbett.
1: Tortoise.
0: I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, We go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just
2: search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.